All right, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for a new day, a new week, uh, the opportunity for us to come apart and come together as your people. Help us now as we study your word and think about what your purpose is for us as a congregation, as a community, as a communion. And we pray these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Starting a new series today titled Life in Our Community. And I want to begin with a couple of things, reading Proverbs 18.1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Pretty powerful proverb. Gives us two warnings. First, if you're isolating yourself, you're selfish. And second, you're not very smart. You, you uh, rage against all wise judgment. So let me begin this series, and it's going to go for several weeks, um, with some acknowledgments. Your pastor is basically a hunter-gatherer. Um, I read, I listen, I learn, I glean from a multitude of teachers, and I've been doing it for a long time. I learn, I have their lessons and sermons and books and friends And I thought about this analogy. It is like um, being given a great recipe. Uh, Then then you go to the market and you shop for the best ingredients and you come home and you put it together for a meal. And so I have a library full of recipe books. Uh, Of course, the cook brings some of his own experience, uh, his skill, artistry to the process to give the dish his particular spin and to add to the process. There should always be thoughtful additions and subtractions and a large helping of love and labor. It's hard to identify, for example, where I accumulated uh, the knowledge uh, or, or know where the knowledge came from or where I got the skills that go into the preparation. Uh, but in the end, if the dish turns out to be beautiful, delicious and nutritious, then the cook may be complimented, though he knows, and others should presume that a great deal of credit goes to a multitude of others, other outside contributors. Sometimes we can and we should acknowledge who the contributors are, and sometimes they have just blended into the cook along the way, forgotten but still essential Um, there is very little originality in the world. Uh, So this this pastoral cook tips his hat to uh, the countless cooks who have gone before me to make this meal possible. Uh, So I hope you enjoy it. The first few lessons are primarily a collection of my thoughts about the church community or communion. I will use the words community and communion interchangeably. And then these lessons will be followed by a walk through Jerry Bridges' book titled The Community, The Biblical Practice of Koinea. Uh, And this little blurb is on the back cover of that book. Fellowship among believers is more than just talking over coffee after after the church service. Biblical fellowship in the New Testament times, or koinea, had rich and varied meanings, including covenant relationship, partnership in the gospel, 
communion with God and with others, and sharing of earthly possessions. Over the last 25 years, God has gathered this community, Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church, this communion, uh, and it is an odd collection of human beings with a variety of backgrounds, ages, and experiences, and gifts. Some have been here from the beginning. Others have come and gone, and a few the Lord has taken to be with him. He has been building this communion, uh, this communion of his people, because he is doing something for us. He's doing something in us. He's doing something to us. Moreover, he has called us as a communion and a community to be an outpost of his kingdom and to be a people that are zealous of good works. He hasn't called us to be spectators or to be tagalongs, but rather to be fully engaged participants in the community of believers. Fully engaged. To be dedicated to Him. To be dedicated to one another. Now this is long, hard work when done right, just as any family requires long, hard work. Starting a family and maintaining a family are two different things. Um, Weariness, laziness, selfishness, busyness, and many other things can cause us to grow dull and to grow lethargic. The Apostle Paul exhorted the Galatians in Galatians 6, 9, and 10, "...and let us not grow weary in well-doing." For in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, obviously, the Galatians were suffering from this. Again, long, hard work to be a community, to be a family. Uh, it's there are many, many challenges to it. And so I want to exhort you from the beginning, and the reason for these lessons is to call all of us to a remembrance and awareness that this is God's work. This is where God wants us to be. This is where He put us, not just in a general vague way, but He put these particular people in this particular place to do a particular to do particular things. So I want to back up and begin with the big picture of why community and communion are so critical. The Bible tells us that God has gathered and called his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And again, we might add to that and say, again, different backgrounds, different experiences, uh, all, the, all the things that uh, distinguish us as individuals our personalities, our gifts, and so forth, God takes all these different pieces and puts them together in communities. For you, um, uh, this is talking about Jesus in Revelation 5, 9, for, G- for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So Jesus himself purchased you with his blood, and as he did so, he put you together with other people, 
people with names and faces. And he didn't, so he didn't just call us to heaven. He's not just rescuing us from hell and taking us to heaven. He called us out of the world, and then he gathered us together in his church, in a community. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, so it's a very particular congregation, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that is set apart in Christ, that's what distinguishes us. We are Christians, followers of Jesus, owned by Jesus, he's our Lord, all of us, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So he has... Christians all over the place. Here, here are some that are at Corinth. And then he has Christians in other places. So there's both the, the large picture of the church, but also this very particular church located in a specific place. Now, sin separates us from God and one another. That's what sin does. It separates, it breaks relationships, it kills This is why in a fallen world, cut off from God by sin, uh, the world can be and is a very ugly place. A lot of bad stuff, a lot of hurtful stuff, painful things, damaging things. But the gospel calls us, each of us, to turn from our sins and to come to Christ. Christ is the unifying person. He deals with our sins. He starts to get those sins out of the way in those relationships. And so each individual sinner is not simply saved from his sins, but he's also adopted into God's family, his household. And that family is his church. Ephesians 2.19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now there's a number of images the Bible uses to teach us about the church and about community, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of God, a temple that's being built up. All of these are images of God's community. And so it is a serious, serious error uh, to seek to live the Christian life in isolation from the family. So in other words, we don't get to lock ourselves in our own bedroom with our music and our stuff and do our own thing. That's not healthy. And then, perhaps, we occasionally join the family for a meal, but never really engage in the life of the family or the household. We don't get to be that teenager who does their own thing. So remember, immaturity is essentially selfishness, which is what's in it for me, uh, what's in it for me attitude. And so God thinks that we need to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves. That's what he thinks. And remember, our job is to think what he thinks. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're as far apart as the heavens are from the earth. But because we're followers of Jesus, we now have to say, I need to change my thinking. I need to look at this the way he looks at this. He says that this is what is needful. And so sometimes that requires us to sacrifice for others, which is love. 
That is to be part of something bigger than ourselves. I think G.K. Chesterton captures this when he writes about the family. And remember, the church is a family. And so he's talking about the nuclear family, but also we can apply this to the church family. And he says this, The man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world, uh, as opposed to by himself. The reason is obvious. In a large community, we can choose our companions. In a small community, our companions are chosen for us. So if we're out there in the world, that's a large community. But in a small community, in your family or in the church, that's chosen for us, he says. The best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and then get along as well as possible with the people on the inside, like our crazy uncle and our eccentric cousin. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day he was born. The supreme adventure is being born. There we do walk suddenly into a splendid and startling trap. There we do see something of which we have not dreamed before. Our father and mother do lie in wait for us and leap out on us like brigands, uh, like brigands from a bush. Our uncle is a surprise. Our aunt is, in the beautiful common expression, a bolt from the blue. When we step into the family by the act of being born, we do step into a world which is incalculable, into a world which has its own strange laws, into a world which could do without us, into a world that we have not made. And we, brothers and sisters, are born again into this community or family that we call the church. Christ died for the church, and we have been redeemed by him, that is, bought by him out of slavery, redeemed by him and made members of his family. We owe our deepest affection, our deepest love and service to the church that he died for. That's how much he values the church. The church is not just a filling station. It is a complete household. And in a family, there are a thousand things going on that we don't see on the surface. Little things that add up to become big things. These particular people, the ones sitting around you right now, God, uh, these are the ones that God has specifically chosen to put you with to love and to serve, every one of them, and they have names and faces. It's incarnational love. It's not up there in the, in the air. It's not in theory. The Scriptures say, 1 Peter 1, 2, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the, tr- the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And again, that's not abstract love. It's not loving, Chesterton somewhere else says, 
God loves the world. He calls us to love our neighbor. It's a lot harder to love our neighbor than it's, a lot, it's kind of easy to love the world. They're out there somewhere. I don't have to put up with their weirdness and their the things that irritate me. But when I'm with real people, just like at your house and your family, and then in the church, that's very different. I'm to fervently love. What you could say, I am to zealously sacrifice for the people that God's put me with. And so again, this can't be done abstractly or from a distance. By the way, also, Jesus has no interest in minimal performance Christians, followers. He called each of us at the very beginning to deny ourselves. This is not about me. To deny ourselves and to live in a community or a communion of believers. Again, Jesus purchased the church with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. He is your personal Savior, but part of what he saved you for was for you to become a vital part of his body. He saved you to become an active and engaged part of his communion. Remember in the book of Acts that we've been working through, Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and he meets with his disciples and said, now you are going to represent me in the world. And that's his commission before he ascends to heaven and he still sits at the right hand of the Father. He's directing traffic. And part of the traffic he directed is directing you here. He says, this is where I want you. This is where I I need you to serve and to be my body and to be represent me in this community. To show the world me. How? By the way, you love each other. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. You sacrifice for one another. You serve one another. Again, real people with names and faces. So I want to come back to the issue of isolation. Just, again, kind of parenthetically, I'll read Proverbs 18.1 again. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. So a man who isolates himself, now either absolutely, like I never go anywhere, I just stay home, or I come and I slip in and I slip out and I kind of play around the edges, but I never really get engaged. I'm still isolated, right? That person is selfish. He seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. That is, he's not very smart. Because self-sufficiency is a sin. God made us to be dependent creatures to live in a community. He said very early in Genesis 2, it is not good for a man to be alone. We need each other. We need families, churches, and broader communities. So part of self-deception, the self-deception of sin, is the siren call to be our own God. To always do it our way. The problem with trying to be God is that the job is way too big for us. And in order to maintain control, then we've got to shrink our world more and more and to eliminate all the threats to us and what I want. Eventually, everything becomes a threat. And thus, my world must continue to shrink. Everything out there becomes an enemy, and then we begin to speculate about what they're up to. 
Isolation produces endless conspiracy theories. Proverbs 11.14 tells us that in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. But God knows that we need one another more than we think we need one another. So if, if we isolate ourselves, or as we isolate ourselves, we find it increasingly hard to feel loved, and we forget how to love. Loving means doing a whole bunch of things you don't want to do. Yeah, I don't really want to go. I don't feel like going. I don't really want to do that. That's not my favorite thing. Yeah, well, get over it. This isn't about you. It's about other people. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about you laying down your life for others. That's what love is. Love is about others. It's about sacrifice for others, about meeting the needs of others, even before you meet your own needs. Pastor Tom Carson, who is the father of D.A. Carson, some of you are familiar with Carson, describes a situation, and I have seen this numerous times over the years, where someone complains that, I don't have any friends at church, or I just don't fit in. And so apparently he was doing that when he was a teenager. He said, when I was in my mid-teens and going through a phase when I wanted to pull away from meetings both local and regional, I pouted. Those who attended didn't have my interest, and all they cared about was themselves and much more of the same. My mother, sitting quietly at her treadle sewing machine, quietly quoted two or three proverbs and then added, he who would have friends must show himself friendly. And she said, at the next meeting, before you go into a sulk, look around you for the loneliest person in the room and go and find out everything you can about that person. Then find the next loneliest person and do it again. He said, inevitably... I resented the advice, but I took her up on it, and to my amazement was soon regarded as one of the region's youth leaders. Self-centered, self-absorbed people always have a hard time making friends or fitting in because they think relationships are all about them. Loving God and loving our neighbors are the the two great commandments. Denying ourselves is the starting place for following Christ. He gave himself for the church, his bride, because he loved her. And it's only in losing our lives that we gain them. And more specifically, we lose our lives as we give it for others. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, than to lay down one's life for their friends. Drew Larson at Ligonier uh, addressed this, and it's very appropriate because here we are at Advent, and he asked the question, why the incarnation is the answer to isolation? He says this, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus, by his birth, fulfills the messianic prophecy in Isaiah 7, quote, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will, be, will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
At Christmas, by celebrating the Incarnation, we celebrate a God who has come to be with us. He is with you. He's with me, with us. He is present in the vast expanses of our inner universes. We know this because once He was present in a manger in Bethlehem. And so it follows that our life, as an obedient response to this reality, is to take that God with us to other people. To proclaim the good news that we are not alone by being present with each other. And not simply present in body, but also in action. To demonstrate the reality of God's presence uh, in the seemingly empty spaces of our world, where injustice and weeping and hurt and depression and loneliness prevail, to be God with us because God has come to us. So there's this problem that many Christians have developed, and I think it's from several, several pieces of bad theology, and that is, I'm going to call it the problem with a personal Jesus. Most of us have heard the question, is Jesus your personal Savior? And of course, let me say emphatically, He must be your personal Savior. But if we stop there, it's where we have a problem. This can be and often is interpreted as uh, to, uh, that to me, uh, excuse me, this can be interpreted to be that he is your private savior. This can easily become a slippery slope, that meaning this leads to that, and soon there becomes the false notion that I don't really need the church since I have Jesus in my heart, and that's all that really matters, right? All that other stuff is okay, and it, some people like it better than others, and and, and it can be good sometimes, but as long as I have Jesus as my personal Savior, that's all that really matters. That's terrible theology. It's contrary to what the Bible says. Jesus is the king of a kingdom, and you are part of a kingdom. There's another great temptation for those who want to reduce their faith to the simplest terms. And this amounts to, what is the least thing I can do and still get to heaven? Because that's all that really matters, right, is getting to heaven. As long as I'm going to heaven. Or how can I do most of what I want to do and still go to heaven? Sometimes this comes down to a self-evaluation of whether I think I'm a good person. At least, I'm a good person compared to other people. But in the evangelical world, there are at least two wrong ideas that create enormous negative consequences. The first one I just mentioned is the idea that if you've asked Jesus into your heart and He's your personal Savior, then that's all that really matters. Your ticket has been punched. It's all about you and Jesus. You're in now and you can coast. Once saved, always saved. The second problem is a false dichotomy of the visible and the invisible church. It is assumed that there, that of the two, 
the invisible church is the real church, and that means that's all that really matters. So i got Jesus as my personal Savior in my heart. That's all that really matters. I guess the other thing that really matters is I'm a member of the invisible church. Because we have two churches, right? A visible one and an invisible one. So both notions, these two notions cause serious problems, and they're both half-truths. And what's a half-truth? A lie. The first half-truth denies the corporate nature of salvation. Acts 20, 28. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, speaking to elders, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. That is not an invisible church that the shepherds are overseeing. And it's not an invisible church that He purchased with His own blood. It's a very visible church. The second half-truth divides the church into two and forces us to really choose between them. We might not self-consciously think about that, but inevitably the invisible abstract church becomes the real church, and this enables people then to diminish the local church or the visible church as being relatively unimportant. Soon these views produce folks who think they don't need the local church at all. They come to have a really low view of the local church and the people Jesus died for start to irritate them and bore them. But Jesus loved his church and gave himself for her. Those were real people, physical people with names and sins and needs. I think of John 10 where Jesus said, I know my sheep by name and I lay down my life for the sheep, the ones that, whose names I know. But there are many who don't think they need to trouble themselves with loving those same people. If they come to church at all, it's to be seen, um, not truly known. And if they certainly don't want, uh, they certainly don't want all the trouble that comes with actually knowing, serving, and loving people that are hard to know and love. Let's keep it superficial. Howdy. How you doing? Good to see you. We walk right by. And we never take the time to have a conversation, to pray, to find out what's going on in their life, to know something about their history, to find out what their needs really are. That would involve me having to have them over for dinner or go to their house or sit down long enough and have a real conversation. We can worship God at home or on the lake or the athletic field or social media or just in our hearts, right? But the Bible is full of instruction regarding the necessity of the community of God's people uh, and our place in it. And we're going to get to some of those details later. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2, says, The visible church, which is also the Catholic or the universal church under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Jesus died for the church. And if you think of the picture of this sanctuary, is the picture of the belly of a ship, like Noah's Ark. 
and it's to be a picture of us being in the church, being in the body of Christ, being part of that body that he died for. Kind of like being on an airplane. Okay, and the plane's going from here to there. If you're not on the plane, you're not going. The ordinary place where God works is in his church, and we're part of it. He's not out just doing this individually. Joel Beakey, Pastor Joel Beakey writes this. Um, he says, Sometimes people find the distinction of visible and invisible to be confusing with regard to the church. We are, talking, are we talking about two different churches? By no means. Perhaps an analogy would help. An old Dutch divine, uh, Wilhelmus A. Brockel, uh, compared it to the soul and body of a man. We recognize that human beings have an invisible aspect and a visible aspect to their lives. The soul is hidden within the body, but we do not divide the soul and body of a living man. We do not expect people to walk around as souls without bodies, nor do we say that a body without a soul is really a man because it's just a corpse. In the same way, we recognize that the church has an invisible and a visible aspect. The invisible church is hidden within the visible. But we do not divide them into two churches. The claim to be part of the invisible church while having nothing to do with the visible church is as plausible as spirits walking around without bodies and almost as frightening. On the other hand, a church without a vital union with Christ by the Holy Spirit is not a true church. It is an institutional corpse. In reality, the invisible church shows itself on earth in and through the visible church. So backing up a little further, the three persons of the Trinity are an eternal loving community or communion. Eternal community or communion. The eternal one and the many. So we need to remember, therefore, God was never lonely or needy. This eternal community did, however, decree that the community should expand. And thus the world was created. Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man and woman. We're going to see that then from there a family, be fruitful and multiply. He wants to fill the earth. He wants to expand this community, of this loving communion. That was the purpose, that we live in, we walk with God and we walk with one another. What happens when sin came in? What, what's the first thing Adam and Eve did after sin came in and broke the communion with God? They hid. They're out in the woods, hiding. Now, I've read this before. I like it, so indulge me. It's Robert Capon's Let Me Tell You Why God Made the World. It's lighthearted, but it illustrates, I think, this picture of the Trinity, the triune God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
He says, one afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being and new kinds of being to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, Really, this is absolutely great stuff. Why don't, I, why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, Terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers, and men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them, and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, Wonderful, just what I had in mind. Tov, 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 or good, good, good. And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think to say was the same thing. Tov, tov, tov. So they shouted together, Tov miod, very good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be and how clever of the Father to think of the idea and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble of putting it together and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever they told old jokes and the Father and the Son drank their wine Uh, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, world without end, amen. It is, I grant you, a crass analogy, but crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not some cosmic force or a principle of being, or any other dish of blanc, blancmange, or sweet dessert we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. So God is expanding his Loving communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by creating this world and creating us to be part of that communion. God made us and God defines us. He determines what we need and what we don't need. He provides a paradise of good things with one limitation. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the place of testing Would man trust and obey God, or would he do it his way? Would God determine what is good for us, or would we be our own God and make that determination for ourselves? Do you think there are people this morning who made that determination about church or are going to? I'll decide whether I need church or not. I'll decide whether I need more rest and stay home this morning rather than worship. I'll decide that. You see the problem here? That was the problem at the beginning. I want to be God. I want to decide what I need and what I don't need. I don't want God telling me that. Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is death. 
So man thinks he knows better than God, and this story has been playing out, been playing out throughout human history. The first 11 chapters of Genesis provide the foundational truths for all of life. Very early in the creation story, we read Genesis 2.18, And God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper comparable to him. And so we were not to be alone. We were not made to do our own thing. We were made to be part of a community and a communion, and a communion with God and with other people. After the initial creation, this expanded with marriage and family. Genesis 2, 21 through 25, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. So, first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes Adam pushing a baby carriage, right? This community is going to now expand. Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now the community or the communion is expanding. The goal was to fill the earth with this loving community of God's image bearers. Remember referring to marriage, Malachi said, but did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Even after the fall of man into rebellion against God, even after man did it his way, even after God brought judgment on man for his perpetual wickedness, we read in Genesis 6-8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and so God saved a family. He preserved a community of people. 1 Peter 3, 20-21, the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Therefore, it is an antitype which now saves us baptism. We're sitting in the belly of that ship now. God saved a family, a remnant, out of a fallen world. That's what the gospel does. Genesis 9-1, after the flood waters receded, the first thing God said to Noah and his sons was, be fruitful and multiply. It was the Great Commission. So God created us after his image to live in community and to not be alone. Marriage and family are small communities, but as we will see, community doesn't stop there. Nevertheless, it is a good place to start and understand the benefits of community and communion. Father, we thank you for your good gifts, for telling us what we need, not leaving us to ourselves, because that would be unwise uh, judgment. Help us, Lord, not to be selfish, to seek our own desire, but to understand we've been called to something much greater, bigger, better, that you have put us here. 
You put us next to these people to love, to serve, to be fed, to be helped, to be encouraged, to be so that we could march together to Zion as your people. Bless us now as we come before you in a few moments to worship you corporately together as we sing, as we pray, as we sit under your word, as we confess our sins, as we receive your absolution, and as we culminate by coming to the table of communion where we remember who you are, what you've done, who we are, and why we're here We pray in Jesus' name, amen.